0: Welcome to another episode of Undisciplined, a collaborative podcast between the African and African-American studies program at the University of Arkansas and KUAF.
1: The podcast provides a holistic understanding of complex issues that affect our interconnected world.
0: Taking the interdisciplinary approach of African and African-American studies to the classroom, into the community, onto the airwaves, and beyond. I am your host, Dr. Karee Banton, and for this fifth season,
1: I have a new co-host. Nenevi Tony. Now let's, let's get, get into, into
0: it. it. I have a history of football syllabus from our guest today that I would love to take. And in the description, he says that every autumn weekend, millions of men, boys, women, girls watch, attend, or play a football game of some type. This course explores the popularity in football, you know, and we can discuss which football are we talking about? Are we talking <laughs> about American football? Or are we talking about soccer? Or the football that the rest of the world knows? Real football. Oh, dear, okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, football has been experiencing meteoric rise and growth over the course of, you know, the last um, century. And so the most recent development of the game, we've seen it come to the U.S. And so this, you know, examination of football um, within sports history, we could focus on the unique position of the game, not just in world culture, but as it's become more important in American culture, we see all kinds of different people, Serena Williams, Kevin Durant, investing in football teams, and so there's this widespread appeal now, I think, recently when Mbappe signed that one-point-how-much-billion-dollar deal. Yeah, that is. Well, it was offered.
1: Yeah, yeah Mbappe was offered, and he turned it down.
0: He tur- I don't know why, because <laughs> I was ready to put on my studs and go back out there on the field, see yeah, if anybody would offer me yeah, something.
1: I think for most people who play sports, they're doing more for their passion and playing oh, than <laughs> Because he's going to be good even if he doesn't take the money. Oh, he's already well. rich. so. Oh, my
0: goodness. Uh, nobody is saying. I even saw Usain Bolt saying that he would lace up his shoes and go back out there on the yeah. field. Right?
1: He tried to. And he, well, he wasn't successful. Oh, also, definitely. in America, because Ghana national team has scored an American national team a few times, <laughs> when Americans think about a good soccer country, they think about Ghana.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's clear bias there, Anthony.
1: It's not a bias. That's based on empirical evidence.
0: (laughs) I'm going to need you to be a little bit more open-minded. But, you know, who is going to be more open-minded? It's someone who has uh, both played the game, he has coached the game, and he's now going to be teaching um, about football. And that is our next guest for this episode, Dr. Todd Cleveland. Now... Dr. Cleveland holds a Ph.D. in African history from the University of Minnesota. His research are broadly concentrated around the interactions between Europeans and sub-Saharan Africans during the colonial period, and in particular, labor and social relations between the Portuguese and the indigenous populations in the former assortment of African territories. Now, Dr. Cleveland's research has been focused on the history of diamond mining in Africa, the history of sports on the continent, and the history of tourism in Africa. And he, it, this features in six books, Stones of Contention, A History of Africa's Diamonds, that was published by Ohio University Press in 2014, Diamonds in the Rough, Corporate Paternalism and African Professionalism on the Mines of Colonial Angola, 1917 to 1975 by Ohio University Press. And then what we want to talk to him about today, following the ball, the migration of African soccer players across the Portuguese colonial empire, 1949 to 75, also by Ohio University Press, and then Sports in Africa, Past and Present, that he co-edited um, with some other colleagues that was published, A History of Tourism in Africa, Exoticization, Exploitation, and Enrichment, and then Tourism, Empire, and African Labor in Colonial Mozambique. That is forthcoming with Cornell University Press. He's currently also working on a book project that examines the history of Africa and the Olympic Games. That sounds so very fascinating. Now, it's unfortunate that, you know, I didn't get the time to really talk to Dr. Cleveland because as two people who played soccer in college, I really wanted to have this conversation. Yeah.
1: It's and a shame so not to miss that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, and so, you know, unfortunately this episode happened while I was kind of in the airport. You may have heard on the previous Episode that I was kind of in a little bit of a situation, a mm-hmm. situation.
1: Yes, a little bit. A of little situation. bit of
0: situation, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, and you know, I should have explained to the viewers that it was extremely fascinating because I thought it was a show of dedication mm-hmm. that I didn't want to waste our producer's it time. It was a show of dedication, or yes. the or the co-host time, or the guest the who guest we had booked time, yeah. that I got out of the plane and sat down and immediately start recording the <laughs> podcast. And then all of the federal people came and started looking at me like, ma'am, what what are you doing You are doing too here? dedicated. What? No, <laughs> they didn't say that. They thought I was stupid. <laughs> like, why are you here? Yeah. Like, do you have common sense? And I was like, shh, I'm recording a podcast. Shh. And that's what I was telling the federal agents. And How did were, they
1: react to that when you told them that?
0: They were incredible. They were like, she out of her mind and i was i realized that i was getting in more and more trouble because i was just like so focused yeah i recorded the podcast and then you know once they detained me and took me to kind of like i only had my backpack on my purse because Mm -hmm. i was supposed to stay in jamaica and they were putting my stuff through the scanner to see if i had any contrabands or whatnot and they were like so what is this podcast about anyway and i'm like what is it called? There, I was like undisciplined.
1: And they are like, oh, you're moving like the title of the podcast right now.
0: Um, they said what? What is this podcast called? And I said undisciplined.
1: And they said you are moving like the title of your podcast right now. And
0: <laughs> and I, I I didn't realize that the title is getting me even into more trouble because I think they were thinking that I was one of those people that. You know those start, podcasters? Yeah, that's that trouble. And no, it's not it. like you try to go in like weird places to do pranks. Yeah, prank,
1: and, prank. Yeah, prank, yes. yeah. And prank so this, I, yeah.
0: I, was, I was like, no, not that kind of undisciplined. The undisciplined where it's not tied to a particular discipline of study. It's <laughs> tied to a particular um, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary ways of investigating evidence and you know, doing research and writing. The and moment you start
1: in big words like that, we're like, okay, we get it. It's not <laughs> a
2: prank.
0: <laughs> but I just kept tying myself up. So that is the reason why uh, you know, my able colleague and then you know, was able to have this conversation yeah, and I with Doctor Cleveland. So
1: much fun with Dr. Cleveland. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we do hope that you enjoy this episode and we'll see you next time.
1: All right. Welcome to another exciting episode of Undisciplined. Uh, Professor Carrie Banting is not able to join us for this episode because she's not arrested. <laughs> <laughs> she's at the airport and she's having a hard time connecting with us. So should be fun just two guys talking sports. <laughs> That's what this episode is going to be, <laughs> and our guest today is uh, Professor Todd Cliffland, the History Department at University of Arkansas. Um, what's your study focused on? What which part of history are you focused on?
2: Sure, Africa. Uh, so Sub-Saharan African history, um, in particular, um, originally at least the Lusophone countries, so the former Portuguese colonies in Africa. So, yeah. namely or primarily Angola and Mozambique, but have since doing work on other places around the continent.
1: Yeah. You also do some of your historical study on sports?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I'm a trained African historian, but I'm a, I guess, untrained sports junkie. <laughs> and so I was able to sort of eventually combine those two um, interests or loves, I should say, um, and passions, um, originally with a course. So I originally taught a uh, history of sports in Africa course, um, and kind of out of that grew a couple, um, book projects. One is an edited volume on the history of sports in Africa and another is on, um, African footballers who migrated to Portugal during the colonial period to play for Portugal. And, and, um, so that was, uh, that's sort of my sports, history of sports in Africa monograph, if you will. Yeah. And that got translated into Portuguese as well. So I was very excited about that. Re- you know, having, having it reach the audience that it would, to whom it would mean the most.
1: Mm. How, okay. Let, before let's we'll get back to the Portuguese. I'm curious about your fascination with Africa. Sure. How uh, did that start?
2: Sure. Um, I was studying um, Portuguese. Uh, I was studying Iberian history. Then I sort of gravitated towards Portuguese history and was working with, I guess, one of the foremost experts on that um, when I was a master student, and then. Um, when I got time to, as I got closer to thinking about a PhD program, I, I, was le- I became less interested in sort of uh, Portuguese history or, or European imperial history and much more interested in how Africans experienced um, colonialism and, and, and in some respects still are. Um, and I just happened to, my sister happened to be in the Peace Corps in Guinea-Bissau in West Africa um, in the late 90s as I was kind of approaching this decision and really and went to visit her, flew into Senegal, went overland um, to reach her sort of small community in, in, in Guinea-Bissau and really just kind of fell in love um, with the continent, kind of caught the bug, so to speak. Um, and so knew that I really wanted to understand how Africans experienced um, colonialism and other aspects of it. Yeah.
1: And why specifically Africa? Because Africa wasn't the only place that was colonized. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> and
2: in fact, the Portuguese had uh, colonial possessions uh, you know, worldwide. Um, that's a good question. I, I guess something struck me about the dynamic between um, uh, Europeans and, and Africans. Um, that ju- it just wasn't as interested in other uh, colonial settings, I guess, or, or f- formerly colonial settings. Um, I don't I don't really have a good answer for why. It just yeah, just think. struck me as something really fascinating, and just kind of ran with it from there. Yeah, but
1: being been, that I'm from Ghana, and you told me you you taught in Ghana for a year. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in the University of Ghana?
2: <laughs> sure. Um, so. Starting in 2010, I think it was, might have been nine, I started taking students on study abroads um, to Ghana and with a couple other um, faculty members. And while I was there, um, I sort of introduced myself to the history department at the University of Ghana because um, I had worked under uh, uh, Gene Allman, who's a scholar of uh, Ghanaian history as part of my PhD program. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of name dropped um, a little bit, And th- but that opened some doors. And so I was able to teach, cl- I volunteered to teach classes because we were in Ghana. F- we were in Accra for an extended period, maybe six or eight weeks okay. and so I could teach like a sort of a mini course and so I, d- I started doing that over a couple of years and then the chair of the department eventually um, suggested I apply for a Fulbright um, fellowship and so that I could come there you know relocate for the entire year mm-hmm. uh, with our, with my family and so sure enough I was selected and um, we did the 2012-2013 academic year at University of, um, of Ghana lived the, on campus
1: that was a very interesting time for in Ghana at a time yeah yeah yeah, re- what was your fondest memory of being in Ghana? at The time uh,
2: my wife will kill me, but
1: uh, <laughs> the food I absolutely <laughs> love the food. Yeah.
2: What's your favorite Ghanaian dish? Uh, maybe red, red. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or a crante.
1: Yeah. What a <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> in fact, I just had some the other week because way, way uh, one of the Ghanaian, um one of the Ghanaian graduate student, students that I mentor uh, brought some back. He was there this summer.
1: Wait, who it's is that? Uh, Elijah we are Oh, and he didn't give me some. <laughs> Sorry, Elijah. <laughs> I know Elijah. I didn't know he brought a from
2: Ghana. <laughs> my my wife loved uh, Ghana as well, but she yeah. was not as big of a fan of the food because of all of the palm yeah. oil. You know, Ghanaian
1: food is more high on the carbs. What did you have with your quarantine?
2: Uh, rice, typically, yeah, jollof rice, <laughs> which is better in Ghana than Nigeria. <laughs>
1: Femme, confirm, that's, that's that's mostly true, 99% true. That's what I mean by mostly. <laughs> so let's talk about football. Okay, before you move to football, do you have a favorite Ghanaian football team? Uh, Hearts of Oak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm from greater Accra region, so Heart of Oak is my team <laughs> as well. True. So what inspired you to start researching football, or as Americans will wrongly
2: call it, soccer? (laughs) Um, I played soccer since I was little. I've always followed the sport. It got really difficult to follow the sport here in the... Um, in the '90s, until oh, I think it was called Fox Soccer World started televising games, so there was a there was a gap or sort of a, a period in which it was very difficult to follow global soccer. The World Cup would be televised, and basically not much else. Um, and so that was the, those were sort of some years where I sort of disengaged a little bit, um, but had always been interested. And then once it started to become televised, how here, did you get into?
1: You grew up in the US, right?
2: Yep, grew up in the US. I really really loved. Um, how did
1: you get interested in soccer or football?
2: Um, as a kid, I played, um, and then I played all through high school and enjoyed it. And what position did you play? Striker. Oh, <laughs> lazy striker. You <Little> striker, <laughs> supporting striker? That was back when strikers didn't have to defend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I lived in London for a while, and my school was University of North London, where I was studying. And yeah. um, so I had to choose between Tottenham and Arsenal, and I clearly made the right decision. I'm yeah. a I'm a big Gunners fan. Yeah, and yeah. so um, they doing all this season. So. I what? mean, last season they did well, and as
1: usual, Arsenal started in wins. So. Yes, <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
1: What is your take on, I know your take, but I'm imposing my take <laughs> on you, on the take on whether it should be su- called soccer or football?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it should definitely be called football. <laughs> <laughs> 90% of all touches during ma- during a match are with the feet. So. Yeah. yeah. But why do Americans call that what they do <laughs> football? <laughs> It's because the uh, Football Association. Um, soccer was a the name. I, I, there's a whole story there why, um, and it has to do with the initials.
1: Yeah. So you said your book was translated to Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why was it translated to
2: Portuguese? Is it because it was focused on Portuguese history? Um, because it was the best history of anything that's ever been written, so they immediately wanted to <laughs> translate it into foreign language. Yeah. Uh, it had to do with the fact that the Portuguese football community is actually rather small, um, as much as Portugal's a, sort of a, I wouldn't say a powerhouse, but a, definitely a, a, a contender on the world stage. But doing football scholarship there puts me in a sort of smaller community of folks who are also connected to the Portuguese Football Federation. And the Portuguese Football Federation funds a a unit at a publisher where they publish uh, Portuguese football related books and so they caught wind of this and contacted me and then offered th- they translated it they published it they did everything so uh-huh. i really did very little uh, as part of that process yeah. other than get that book out there in the first yeah. place but it was it was it was difficult because i was interviewing folks and i can speak portuguese fluently but i was interviewing folks and you know unfortunately telling them every time that uh, ultimately the book would be published but it would be in english <laughs> and they would you know kind of be bummed yeah. because they knew they really couldn't they can't read it exactly yeah. so yeah. I was really happy to reach back out to so many of the the former players that I interviewed and tell them that there was going to be a a Portuguese yeah. uh, version.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. impressive, and I'm curious as to why there's very little scholarship on football and Portuguese football in particular. Because the best player in the world is from Portugal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> we're gonna have the Ronaldo <laughs> Messi <laughs> argument here and now. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's there's there's more folks than you would think working on uh, football, uh, Portuguese football, but in Europe, I found very quickly that Europeans um, there's a there's a huge community of scholars in Europe that work on football and take it very. F- Seriously, when I started doing this project, a, a football scholarship in the United States or soccer scholarship in the United States uh, was very sort of fringe. You know, it wasn't yeah. perhaps taken as seriously. But in Europe, there are centers for soccer study or football studies rather. Um, it's taken very seriously. I mean, it, of course, it was the birthplace of the game was in yeah. was in England. But uh, nonetheless, there's a very vibrant, large community of scholars who work on football in Europe. <laughs> not yeah. so much in the U.S.
1: What does your book say? What does the book tell us about football?
2: Uh, oh boy. Well, the sort of the the um, it's it's really a book about human relations through the prism of football. So it's understanding human relations and dynamics in the colonies through football, and then as these players relocate um, from the colonies to the metropole, it's understanding these sort of human racial or interracial dynamics again through the prism of football. And I really treat the I treat the um, sorry the, the the football players as. Uh, as workers. So mm-hmm. I talk about labor strategies that they learned in the colonies, that they sort of reapply in the metropole. Um, and I'll give you a, a, a little anecdote about this. Uh, I don't know if you probably know who Ezebio is. Sort of top yeah. ten player of all time, born in Mozambique, but eventually played for the Portuguese national team. Uh, won the, um, you know, won all sorts of things, playing yeah. for Benfica. Um, and we sat down to interview. It was a very long process. In fact, yeah. I just wrote a piece on the blog about this. Um, and <laughs> wow. I was very intimidated because my prior work had been only with mine workers, you know, yeah. sort of anonymous individuals in history um, but now I was interviewing this sort of global guy who's all who was traveling around the world he was very difficult to, to connect with and even when I call him I was a little bit intimidated mm-hmm. but anyway we finally sat down we finally had an opportunity to interview and he, he said you know I, I was still kind of intimidated by the, by him and he said how long is the interview gonna take and I said uh, maybe like an hour, and he said mm, less or <laughs> less. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, he, now he doesn't even want to be here, and we're going to make this as quick as possible. But as we started talking, I started asking him about nothing about on the field. I didn't care about the, who the greatest player he ever played against yeah. was or was the best goal he ever scored. And I started talking to him about what they did during the week—not practice, but s- socially. Who did, did? How did they interact with the, with the Portuguese? Were you know with Portuguese women, all Portuguese men, and uh, white players, etc.? And you know, did you go to the movie? beach, go to the beach all these kind yeah, of questions yeah. and he said no one, important uh, questions." yeah he yeah. said no one's ever asked me about this before mm. and he's he's he sort of paused and he, he started thinking he was like i'm gonna have to think about this and this is really interesting to me because nobody asked me about these sorts yeah, of things and yeah. so we had a very long conversation um, and so he seemed great very you know very grateful to really what I was doing was prompting him to think back about some things yeah. o- about which he had very fond memories but yeah, he d-
1: because at the end of the day even though he was a superstar he was also a human being exactly and exactly. nobody ever cares about his humanity so. <laughs> exactly <laughs>
2: that's a gr- that's a great way to put yeah. it yeah
1: when discipline will be back after this commercial break
0: The latest edition of The R Word, a podcast that explores reparations role in racial, social, and economic justice, features an interview with Propaganda about his art and the impact that songs like Playing With Fire and What Do You Know About Grace
1: have had on us. Tweeted about it. Don't be so Come from eastern side of Los Angeles, pretty ethnically diverse as far as like predominantly Mexican and, and uh, Filipino. So I kind of grew up in a pretty kind of tri-cultural space, you know, during some of the bigger movements in L.A. around hip hop, uh,
0: skate, skateboarding, all that. So it's really, really cool, really cool time to be alive. The R Word podcast available now at KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: welcome back <laughs> so because i understand that because my background have been in entertainment media so i sort of interview people like that sometimes okay. not so much as you know the <laughs> biggest superstars in the world right but still <laughs> yeah okay so um you created a course called the history of football
2: mm-hmm. and what's the impetus for that course uh The history of so I teach two different classes, both kinds of football. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the history of American football, real football in America, <laughs> yeah, real football and <laughs> American football. The uh, the history of American football was really an attempt to um, this. Actually, the idea came from um, Jim Gigantino, former, still a colleague, but he's now in administration but um, he wanted to, to design these courses that would be really widely or broadly appealing and that we could have 150 students for example so really get get our get history out there to more and more people you know not in a class that's limited to 35 people um, and that was wildly successful i mean the, mm-hmm. we we kept adding and adding and adding people so i, I think we ended up with 130 or something like that yeah. the first time we ran the course wow. so as you, i mean predict, predictably it was yeah. popular how many
1: what do students encounter when they come to the program
2: uh, for that class. Um I think a lot of them, um, a lot of them really enjoyed it. I got really fantastic, you know, qualitative uh, evaluations in that class. But however, there were some discontent students, <laughs> as well as we were talking about before, who yeah. thought we were going to sort of memorize who won uh, all of the uh, Cotton Bowls in history <laughs> and who had the most touchdown passes, yeah. uh, you know, in the NFL during the 1980s. The, so you don't touch of, on that at all? No, it, we usually I use football as sort of a prism through which to understand American history, yeah. uh, d- important developments in American history. I mean, there's yeah. plenty of football. I mean, it's part of the the content yeah. Of the class, yeah. but we're, we're not there to, uh, you know, to quiz each other regarding who won the Super Bowl, you know, in a particular exactly, yeah. year, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, what do you think
1: is the most important contribution football has made to American history?
2: Uh, um I, I think it's helped break down uh, racial barriers um, at times mean, some of the most Im- vocal and important and influential people um, have been football players I'm thinking of jim brown for example um, in in tackling uh, you know and addressing some of the racial um, uh, issues and challenges you know that we've had in America um, football sometimes is a a lens through which we can better understand American society and vice versa i mean yeah. if you if you have a, an understanding of American society that's a uh, that's another way to understand um to d- d- have a d- sort of deeper understanding of, of yeah. football and the dynamics within that um industry i mean it's beyond it's more than just a game
1: yeah so do you want to touch more on the role race has played in the development of football in america
2: um it's a. I mean, it's a. <laughs> a <laughs> because you played up, that's why. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I. don't think we have time. In a way, to I think it's some. Um, I think again, some football players and to a lesser extent others involved in the game um, have made important contributions to um, uh, racial discussions, racial discourse, and 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 pushback on some of the uh, racial issues. Uh, really. Um, Uh, advocating and promoting um, some of the racial challenges that we have in America, using their platform to do more than just score touchdowns and make tackles, that sort of of thing. Professor Banton will be
1: angry at me if I don't ask (laughs) this. Have gender played any role in your research? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, So my research, I'm going to dodge this like a politician. (laughs) So my research, um, when it's been sports-related, has largely, uh, perhaps regrettably, been about uh, men. Um, But my research is sort of uh, transcends. uh, um, I'd say my research agenda is eclectic, put it that way. So my last two books have been on tourism. Um, in Africa and so um, obviously women and gender dynamics are much more important in those histories than they are in sort of the, you know the relo- relocation of yeah. African footballers you know uh, to from Africa to the Portu- uh, to Portugal okay. so genders played a much more significant role in some of my more recent research and certainly if I go back even before my sports studies and, and look at my work on diamond mining um, women played a, a really important role on the mines um, in Angola, that that's one of my first books was about that and yeah. so it's it's more prominent and some areas of my research and less so in others. And one of the biggest regrets I have is that I interviewed all these former players for the book on African football migrants, um, former coaches. I even interviewed um, Africans who happened to be in um, Portugal at the time, just living there, but having nothing to do with football. And I missed the opportunity to, to interview... Uh, the wives um, of some of these players, mm. um, and I think that they would have provided tremendous insight into their sort of yeah. th- their lives, and so yeah. that, I, that's a regret I'll always have. And maybe, I, I maybe researchers <laughs> bias. <laughs> <laughs> I can't go back and fix that. Yeah. Unfortunately. So about the
1: role women play in the diamond mines in Angola, mm-hmm. is there some antidote you want to offer
2: on that? Uh, oh gosh, um, I mean they were instrumental to the success of the mining, even though they played th- their their roles were often in the background. But one of the most, I think powerful moments I had. Um, I was interviewing two women, actually, um, and they were remembering their lives. They were quite old at the time, probably in their 80s. Um, so going back, you know, this would have been in the 40s, probably. Um, and they, w- they started remembering working on the mines, and they were working in orchards and plantations to, in order to feed all the, the tens of thousands of, of workers. Um, and they started singing um, songs that they used to sing mm-hmm. and some of them were, I mean it was really really powerful as they started, um, the two of them singing together because they these were songs that they hadn't sung and Decades and they were Mm -hmm. remembering and and they were sort of doing it in unison and some of the lyrics were derogatory towards the portuguese Because they were they were it was in choco local language and portuguese couldn't understand that Mm -hmm. And so they would sing and then explain to me in portuguese what they were singing and you know They'd say like my my dirty old boss this evil portuguese man I mean all these sort of uh, sorts of derogatory comments But for the most part it was just the melody that was really sort of captivating And, and 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 picturing them working really toiling um, out in the fields in order to generate food for the workers, but in order also generating uh, tremendous amounts of money for the company. Yeah. So
1: I'm glad you mentioned that that there are songs where some of them were degraded towards the Portuguese because one of the things that usually get overlooked when research is being done on protest and resistance to colonialism in Africa, mm-hmm. music and art mm-hmm. is a very, was a very important part of it but I don't think that researchers tend to focus enough on that. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, people don't take to the streets, mm-hmm. but they sang songs and they shared stories Absolutely. with other people about how they felt about it. Absolutely, the and the lyrics can be, uh, the lyrics are a part of that. Yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I wanted to talk a bit about the development of soccer in the United States right now, mm-hmm. because the World Cup, the US would be hosting a World Cup in 2026. Mm-hmm. And I saw a research that said that U.S. soccer might become as huge as... Yeah. It, maybe not as huge as football in the U.S.,
2: <laughs> but might become very huge by 2026. Sure. There's, there's, there's one thing that the U.S. has going for it and one thing that um, is problematic. The, what what the U.S. has going for it is that um, youth soccer has sort of re-exploded. It exploded in the 70s, and now it's even more popular than ever. Why is that? Part of the reason is because... more and more parents are prohibiting their kids from playing American football because of all the the long-term um, yeah. problems associated okay. with, with the, you know, it's a very violent, very physical game. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, football leagues uh, generally, youth football is shrinking, um, and soccer is expanding, um, you know, massively uh, for boys and girls. And so you have, you know, legions of American kids playing soccer, and so, you know, not all of them are going to stick with it, but the mm-hmm. more you have playing, the better. What's working against American soccer is that we generally have what's called a pay-to-play system. So, instead of being taken in by an academy, for example, which has Happens around the world, mm-hmm. and the academy taking care of your schooling, um, you know, housing, food, etc. Um, it's, a, it's 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 reasonably expensive to play soccer in America at a at a high level as a youth because you have to join a club team, which you pay for, mm-hmm. and then you have to travel. So you might have a you might have a tournament in Oklahoma City, which means you have to travel there for the weekend, you know, uh, stay in hotels, etc. And so. It, it's sort of pr- it's cost prohibitive for or, you know for certain families um, and parents, and so that's problematic. And, th- and so we're losing some really good or potentially really good players because of the system we have set up in the United States. We we simply don't have. So
1: it. soccer is suffering from capitalism, like <laughs> <laughs> the rest of American society. Yes, you could safely <laughs> say that soccer <laughs> is suffering from capitalism. So
2: do you think that that could change at some point? There's been talk. There there have been sort of uh, discussion about setting up an academy system in the United States. There are a that exists currently. Um,
1: you know what? There's a soccer academy in Ghana called Right to Dream. Mm-hmm. yeah, And it's owned by an American. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ironically, they don't have one in America. Yeah. But I think what happened was, I think he went to Portugal. Uh-huh. I think so. I think it's Portugal. If I had Portugal or Denmark, one of those two countries, and okay. then he fell in love with a game of football, <laughs> okay. and they came to Ghana to set up a soccer academy. <laughs> I
2: mean, as you know, there are plenty of soccer academies in Ghana. Yeah. Some of them a little...
1: Right to play is very important in Ghana because... I think five of the players who, play, who was on our World Cup team uh, are from the academy. that academy. Oh, nice! Yeah.
2: I mean, some of them are unscrupulous in the sense that they're not overly concerned with the child's education. They simply want to uh, generate the best soccer player possible so that then they can sell that player. Um, but others. Are I think much it was right to dream. Sorry. Right yeah, to dream. you're right. Others are much more concerned yeah. about a, a more balanced uh, life for the for the for the kids.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I think that particular academy has been relatively positive for mm-hmm. the life of the kids. Yeah. yeah. And also, so um, do you think that the role of the second best player in the world coming to America <laughs> will affect the relationship to of Americans to the game? Uh,
2: yeah. Because
1: I, I'm asking this because Inter Miami is now the most followed right. sport, professional sport team in America. That's very true. <laughs> more than the Lakers, not, Yeah. more than Cowboys, yeah, more than everybody. Not even
2: in the top 100. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think Messi coming has helped. It's sort of brought in people who were mildly interested, who are, you know, starting to engage a little more closely. Um, certainly, um, the folks who get to see him in person um you know it's a story you can tell your kids you saw Messi play that kind of thing so even if a parent doesn't really care but the kid cares they you know they both go to see the the match and um I I think it can only be a good thing for for everyone involved I think Messi was smart to do it to kind of build further build his brand in a way that's surprising that for example Ronaldo went to Saudi Arabia Uh where that's going to be much more difficult yeah, I think Ronaldo going to Saudi
1: Arabia has also affected Saudi Arabia positively because now big players mm-hmm. who are on top of their game are open to going to Saudi Arabia.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's my understanding they now have a tele or a television contract is in the works. Yeah, and so that those games will be televised um, yeah. internationally.
1: Both Mercy and Ronaldo. I wish Ronaldo had come to the yeah, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 who is your favorite Monday to Do my favorite. Among the two players, oh, Messi and Ronaldo.
2: As much as I've followed Ronaldo more closely because I root for Portugal, I've seen Ronaldo play in person a number of oh, times. How many times? Uh three. Wow. Um, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean it really is amazing to watch him play, but um I would say I, I still think Messi's slightly better. Yeah. Um, but I don't
1: want to argue with that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's just your personal uh, subjective yes. opinion.
2: <laughs> My wife thinks otherwise, but <laughs>
1: yeah. Anyway, so um, about um, Africa football, mm-hmm. do you have a favorite, top five favorite African footballers?
2: Uh, I mean, b- back in the day, I used to love Adebayor, um, in part because he played for Arsenal. Yeah, um, I respected um, Michael Essien, even mm-hmm. though I Hated Chelsea (laughs) (laughs) naturally. Uh, I always was one of the greatest. Yeah, Yeah. I always respected Drogba in part because he scored so many goals (laughs) against Arsenal. So glad to see him move on. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but um, yeah, I mean, those would have been some of the ones that really I think are, you know, maybe not that
1: would probably mean that your love of African football was in the early 2000s.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind of when. I think Fox Soccer World started broadcasting in the U.S. late 90s or maybe 2000, 2001. And so then it became much easier to, to follow the game, to learn about other players. And, and it, you know, as you know, it wasn't in anywhere in the newspapers or anything like yeah. that. And that was just on sort of the verge of uh, the Internet. and I mean, not the verge of the Internet, but I mean, the Internet hadn't been, World Wide Web, I should say, hadn't been, you know, around that long. So it, that made it easier to follow, um, at, you know, all these games, all these players, all these teams um, around the world. Yeah. before I ask my last question to ask you this you
1: know Noah Lyles the US track and field star, uh, champion was <laughs> yes. talking about the fact that American uh, basketball players or teams shouldn't call themselves world champions yes. <laughs> because they will not a league in a country exactly
2: <laughs> yes. what's your opinion on that yeah in America we have a penchant for naming uh, all of our uh, sporting competitions <laughs> world championships <laughs> and when in fact and we were talking about this before there's yeah. one baseball team in Canada Yeah. <laughs> so the world series is a bit misleading <laughs> yeah just... Well, I mean we do have the, the world baseball uh, tournament now uh, but still it's been called the world yeah, series it's like
1: more. I saw some arguments that, yeah, American League is the biggest in the world. There are so many people from the world. Sure. And I'm like, yeah, but Champions League doesn't call itself <laughs> exactly.
2: the World League. Yes, that's the UEFA Champions <laughs> yeah, League. Yeah, that's the UEFA <laughs> <for> Champions League. <laughs>
1: exactly. And in what way do you consider your work to be undisciplined? Uh, oh,
2: man. <laughs> um, uh, hey, undisciplined. Um hmm. You're going to have a lot of sighing and mm to edit out. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd say topically I'm undisciplined because um, my research has been so eclectic. Um, It's hard to it's hard to draw threads sometimes through my research because the topics have been so dramatically different. Um, and so I don't just work on this. I work on this and this and this and that and the other thing. Um, part of that's because I'm maybe I'm not as undisciplined as I am unfocused. Um, so you know who knows? And now I'm launching a project on diplomatic history, which I have never done before. And I, I feel uh, a bit, in, it's a bit daunting to me there. So um, I, I don't linger too long on a particular um, yeah. area and can just kind of move on. Um, How
1: far along are you
2: on the? this um, about two months into this project so
1: and okay so i want to end by asking you about your research on african Mm tourism uh what was your research focused on
2: um, well, the two projects. One was a, just sort of a general history of tourism uh, continent-wide, including North Africa. And the other project was more, uh, was a monograph. It was specifically on uh, the, the birth of the colonial, or sorry, the birth of the tourism industry and the, and the development, subsequent development of the industry in colonial Mozambique and how the Portuguese. So it was a labor history. So I interviewed many uh, Mozambicans who used to work in the, uh, hotels, restaurants, yeah. and that kind of thing. I also interviewed a lot, a lot of tourists who went, back, who went to Mozambique during the 1960s and 1970s, back when it was still a colony. To better understand their motivations, their experiences, etc. But also, what I found really interesting too is that Portugal used it um, as kind of a to sort of whitewash its colonialism. Um, you know, they they had shiny brochures all over the world. They had hired mm-hmm. PR firms in the United States and other places to talk about Mozambique as a destination. Meanwhile, you know that they have forced labor and you know it's a colony that they're exploiting and 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 and, and its peoples as well. Um, so it was this sort of bizarre juxtaposition of um, the promotion of tourism, welcoming people. To to a place Mm -hmm. where um, the indigenous community was being um, deliberately exploited (laughs) and and oppressed. And so it makes for a very odd sort of uh, destination in some respects.
1: Is Mozambique still a popular tourism destination?
2: Yeah, uh, largely for uh, South Africans, um, but also, yeah, in general. Um, Yeah, their uh, tourism industry is um, still strong.
1: Um, Is Portuguese influence still heavy over there?
2: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, language, linguistically, absolutely, but also in the cuisine, um, it's more, it's, a lot of it's straight up. Portuguese, or you'll see some type of fusion in a way. Some of the professionals are Portuguese, so what's happened is that um, and there's been sort of complaints about recolonization, is that Portuguese professionals, when especially when the Portuguese economy was um, floundering in a way, they were going back to the colonies looking for, or former colonies, looking for work and taking up positions for which they were qualified. I mean, we're talking about professionals, engineers, mm. you know, those sorts of folks, and you know, doctors and sorts of things, but uh, as you might imagine, there was a an outcry about you know sort of the real you know we kicked these guys out once and now they're coming yes. back and not, not so much taking their jobs necessarily because they weren't taking uh, those uh, jobs uh, but they were coming back in reasonably large numbers and, and forming like a sort of a professional class in a way um, so that, that that relationship remains strained at times problematic at times but Portugal's also a supporter financially of the former colonies perhaps yeah. you could argue out of guilt um, <laughs> but the the ties have remained close yeah.
1: that. It's the same in Ghana and the U and the UK. UK, yeah, there's are still that relationship. Yeah, I think mo- mostly maybe it's not just guilt or the fact that they've been there for a while.
2: So <laughs> yeah, they, they know each other. <laughs> they know each other <laughs> for yeah. all the wrong yeah, reasons. Because
1: my <laughs> father's generation and older generation seems to have an, a, a a strong fondness for the United Kingdom yep. and exactly. the former Queen. I don't know about the King. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody like him? I don't. <laughs> I don't teasing. think people even know him enough to, <laughs> That's true. to decide whether they like him or That's not. That's true. He's yeah. been in the shadow for a long time. Huh? Yeah. Thank you for this interview. It's been very enjoyable for me. Thank you very yeah. much.
2: Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to another resident episode of Undisciplined. This episode was hosted by Dr. Keri Banton and my co-host Nenebi Tony. It was produced by Leah Grant. Undisciplined is a collaboration between African and African American Studies at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. It's available every other Wednesday at KUAF.com or on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the African and African American Studies program and the Undiscipline podcast on our Instagram page, at U-A-R-K underscore A-A-S-T or visit K-U-A-F to listen to this and other episodes. If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcasts and read us.